0: At the beginning of the 20th century, a young girl named Evelyn Nesbitt moved to New York City to make it as a model and an actress. By 1906, she had become the key witness in the crime of the century. Hear about what that crime was and how it happened today on Footnoting History. Hi, I'm Sam Sagui, and today I'm going to tell you about Evelyn Nesbitt and the crime of the century, making the world go wee. But before I even get started, I want to acknowledge that a lot of my account is drawn from Evelyn Nesbitt's reflection of her own past. Therefore, much of what I'm going to tell you is a little bit biased, and it comes from her perspective. I'm not entirely sure that's a bad thing in this instance, since so much of her life and the scandal around it really was shaped by the men in her life. So in some ways, it's actually kind of refreshing to see what the woman had to say for herself. Evelyn's early childhood was unremarkable. She was born on Christmas Day in 1884, not far from Pittsburgh. Her father, Winfield, was a lawyer who pampered his daughter and her brother, uh, her younger brother. He intended for his children, son and daughter, both to receive a college education, and Evelyn would later reminisce fondly of the books he purchased for her. Winfield was not, however, an ambitious man, and was unwise when it came to the financial well-being of his family. Perhaps that wouldn't have mattered had he lived longer, but he died when Evelyn was eleven years old. His debts meant that the family was forced to foreclose upon their home months after his death, and his wife, also named Evelyn, though I will refer to her as Mrs. Nesbitt in order to prevent confusion, lacked any skills beyond those required to run a middle-class household. Mrs. Nesbit found herself raising two children with no money and no skills. She fancied herself a seamstress or a fashion designer, but had no experience to help her get a job. Eventually, she did find a job as a sales clerk at Warnamaker's department store. She also found jobs for both of her children there, and between the three of them, they could afford to live in a boarding house, and they barely scraped together enough to eat. A week before Evelyn's 14th birthday, Mrs. Darrock. A local painter saw Evelyn on the street and asked her to pose. After receiving permission from her mother, Evelyn sat for five hours and earned a dollar for her efforts. This was much more than she could make in a day at the department store. Soon she was discovered by other local artists and began to model regularly. Although Mrs. Nesbitt voiced some initial objections, she soon realized that they would be able to live off Evelyn's new career, so she quit her job, presumably to oversee her daughter's modeling. Mrs. Nesbit, however, had no business acumen and would be a limited asset to her daughter. Perhaps she realized that she was in over her head because Mrs. Nesbit eventually decided to move to New York on her own to look for a job as a seamstress. When she failed again, she sent for her daughter, who would soon become the glittering girl model of Gotham. Initially, Evelyn was very lucky. Because of introductions from artists in Philadelphia, she ended up working with a respectable old painter in New York, James Carroll Beckwith. Beckwith, it seems, was very concerned for Evelyn. Unlike her mother, he oversaw her career steering her towards real artists and away from the less morally scrupulous men known for producing what was effectively pedophilia. Evelyn soon started working as a photographer's model and was featured in a growing number of women's magazines and advertisements. Known for her youthful charm and her talent for appearing simultaneously innocent and alluring, Evelyn quickly became the first recognizable pin-up girl. Some would even consider her the first supermodel. But Evelyn was still a young girl, and she grew bored spending hours in alternatively hot or cold studios having to stay still. Soon, she asked her mother for permission to appear on the stage— Again, in spite of initial reservations, her mother agreed after being assured that Evelyn would be able to keep modeling during the day and that her stage appearance would provide an additional source of income. It was while she was a chorus girl in Floridora that Evelyn first came to the attention of Stanford White. White was a famous architect in New York. He designed, among other things, the Tiffany, Whitney, Pulitzer, and Vanderbilt mansions, St. Paul's Church, the New York Herald building, penn station and the washington square arch his greatest achievement was madison square garden on the roof was a beautiful garden and a theatre topped with a gilded bronze statue of diana which was scandalously nude the statue ignited the indignation of the more prudish elements of new york society most notably anthony comstock the self-proclaimed crusader of purity and the driving force behind the Comstock laws, which make it a crime to send material with sexual content through the mail. Comstock and his cohort would have plenty of problems with White. White was notorious in some circles for his love of underage chorus girls, and he had many inappropriate affairs with them. White, however, kept these escapades fairly covert. His great aesthetic skills and his ability to acquire coveted art for a price earned him a place in New York society. It was towards the end of 1901, when Stamford White, then 46 years old, arranged to have Edna Goodrich, one of Evelyn's fellow chorus girls, bring the not-yet-seventeen-year-old Evelyn to a luncheon he was planning. On the appointed day, Edna brought Evelyn to one of White's secret love nests. There, they met another older gentleman, and had a completely appropriate meal ordered in from Delmonico's, which must have seemed like quite the luxury for the girl, who just a few months before had been literally starving. After the meal, the party moved to another room where White had a red velvet swing. He suggested that they give Evelyn a ride, which she agreed to with childlike glee. Again, the diversion was wholly innocent, though Evelyn would later be known as the girl on the swing. After the meal, White asked to see Evelyn again. He then had a meeting with Evelyn's mother, where, apparently, he managed to charm her. White would soon convince the family of his paternal benevolence. He established Evelyn and her mother in a respectable suite at the Wellington Hotel, and he began to pay for Evelyn's brother, Howard, to attend boarding school. Meanwhile, he continued his innocent rendezvous with Evelyn, providing her with luxurious meals and toys from F.I.O. Schwartz. Soon Evelyn found herself charmed by this portly erudite man who she would start to refer to as Stanny. Perhaps he filled the hole left by her father, or maybe she just needed someone to take an interest in something beyond her looks, and Stanny did make some efforts to improve her education. Or maybe it was simply his generosity, but whatever the reason, White soon became a central part of Evelyn's life. After some time White suggested to Mrs. Nesbitt that she should take a holiday to visit her son. He generously volunteered to assure that Evelyn remained safe in New York. And so, Mrs. Neffitt left for ten days after extracting a promise from her daughter that she would obey White. After her mother left, Evelyn came to one of the standard dinners at White's apartment. Only this time, the other guests mysteriously decided not to come. She stayed anyway and enjoyed the meal where she discovered that the champagne poured freely. After the meal, Stanford invited his youthful guest to explore the areas of his apartment that she'd never seen before. First, he took her to a room covered in mirrors, which appealed to the beautiful young narcissist. He then invited her into a small bedchamber and invited her to play dress-up, offering her an expensive yellow satin kimono. Then he induced her to drink another glass of wine, which she later recalled tasted a bit bitter. After that, she passed out. She would later say that she had simply drunk too much. Others, Harry Thaw, for example, would insist that she had been drugged. When she awoke, she was lying on top of the sheets, clad only in a pink undergarment next to the nude Stanford white. In 1914, she recalled, and here I quote, I could not realize what happened. All I knew was that something terrible had come to me, and I screamed. With terror on his face, he tried to stop me. For God's sake, don't, he pleaded. It was horrible, horrible. I knew without understanding what happened after I cannot tell. stanley tried to comfort her and then drove her home where he left her sitting in a chair by the window. So in short, the girl had been raped. stanley would return later. He would tell her that this was normal, that everyone did it, that no one talked about it. He would extract promises of silence, which she kept for a time. And then he told her that she belonged to him effect which she took at his word. In the coming year, their sexual trysts would continue in secret, though Evelyn would always feel polluted by that initial loss. Reflecting on Stanford White later, she would refer to him as, and here I quote, a benevolent vampire. Although White's attentions to Evelyn continued, he still had a wandering eye, and continued his liaisons with other chorus girls. These affairs made Evelyn jealous, and she attempted to make quite jealous in turn by accepting dinner invitations from men who admired her on the stage. Her most successful attempt to arouse White's envy was a short-lived and probably innocent affair with Jack Barrymore. Barrymore was a young, eccentric, good-for-nothing drunk who hailed from a famous acting family. He would later have a very successful acting career, but when Evelyn met him he was living off his charm and the kindest family friends. The two went about town together for a few weeks. One night they passed out drunk in Jack's room. It was the first night that Evelyn had spent away the whole night from home. And when she returned, she discovered both her mother and White waiting for her, ready to chastise her for her indiscretion. Soon thereafter, Barrymore proposed, but Evelyn turned him down, accepting instead an invitation from Stanny to attend a girl's school in New Jersey. Before she left for New Jersey, one more man would enter the scene, Harry K. Thaw. Thaw was the heir to a $40 million fortune in Pittsburgh. He was also somewhat unstable, and was known by some as Mad Harry. He had curious appetites, which often involved handcuffing and beating women. He spent an estimated $40,000 over the course of two years to lure 200 girls to a hotel room where he posed as a theatrical coach and then proceeded to beat them with dog whips. Although Harry had managed to establish himself in European society to a degree, he was less successful in New York where his lack of social graces trumped his wealth. Although Thaw's exclusion from high society in New York owed mostly to behavior unbecoming a gentleman, he became fixated on Stanford White as the reason for his social humiliation. For his part, White didn't much like Thaw, whom he referred to as the Pennsylvania Pug, but he had too little regard for him to actively thwart him, either. Thaw employed a network of spies who informed him that White's main squeeze was Evelyn Nesbit, and so Thaw made it his mission to get to know her. Thaw began by sending letters to Evelyn under the alias Mr. Monroe. He then used one of her fellow chorus girls to arrange a luncheon, much as White had done on the first encounter with the young beauty. He later went to meet her mother, failing utterly to make a good impression. A week later, Evelyn found herself seated next to Thaw at a dinner to which she had been invited by another actress' friend. In the following weeks, Harry hid his darker side and worked hard to convince Evelyn of his concern for her well-being. Just after she left New York for the school, Harry proposed to the chorus girl, and she refused. Evelyn settled into the girls' school for a time though she was always something of an outsider and a hero to the privileged girls in attendance there. Then, in 1903, she was diagnosed with acute appendicitis. Her mother tried to get in touch with White to appeal for medical services. When she could not find him, she turned to her next best bet, Harry Thaw. Thaw immediately got the best doctors he could find and repaired to the school where he held Evelyn's hand as she went under surgery. Then he generously volunteered to take her and her mother to Europe to recover. Mrs. Nesbit and Harry never got along, and during the trip they grated on each other even more than usual. After a while, Thaw abandoned Mrs. Nesbit in London with his valet, while he went on to Paris with Evelyn. Mrs. Nesbit would soon return to New York, where she initiated a suit accusing Thaw of abducting her daughter. Meanwhile, Harry continued to convince Evelyn of his concern. One night when they were in Paris, He convinced her to tell him why she kept refusing his marriage requests. As he suspected, she had been spoiled by the beast, Stanford White. He insisted she tell him the whole story in detail. He cried with her. He forgave her, and he told her it was not her fault. Then he took her to a secluded castle in Germany. While they were at the castle, Harry revealed his true colors. One night after supper, he banished the servants to the far end of the castle Then, after they retired, he entered Evelyn's bedroom. He was naked and carried with him a dog whip. He beat her and raped her and then left the room. When they moved on from the castle, he allowed her to see a doctor to check in on her recovery from the appendectomy, but nothing was said of her other injuries. Evelyn found herself trapped in Europe with thaw for a time. When they returned to London, she met friends of White's and appealed to them to bring her home. And so, Evelyn returned to New York, to her mother, and to Stanford White. Thaw, however, had not forgotten about her, and sent appeal after appeal, apologizing, insisting that he had changed and begging for her forgiveness. He went crazy thinking about what White had done to her, he insisted. He would never do it again. Now, I'm going to make a long story short. In the end, Evelyn married Harry K. Thaw. Why, might we ask, would she do such a thing? Well, it's easy to doubt her judgement. But at the same time, Evelyn didn't have many choices. She had been polluted by her sexual contact, first with White, then with Thaw, and she refused to marry without revealing her past to her prospective fiancé. Thaw knew about her sordid past, and he wanted to marry her anyway. He was also extremely wealthy and could offer her a comfortable life. This is not a factor that we should underestimate. Evelyn had known what it was to be hungry. She had worked hard, but she had developed no skills aside from her beauty, which would not last forever. She had also grown used to luxury in her dealings with White and with Thaw. Evelyn was in a difficult position. White could not afford to keep her forever. He was married, and he wouldn't want to anyway because he had a decided preference for young girls. Evelyn might have seen Thaw as her only alternative, and maybe she was right. It's also entirely possible that at barely eighteen years old, having little memory of her own father, that Evelyn believed that this was the way men treated women, and that it was normal. Of course, what they did to her was inexcusable, but she wouldn't necessarily have understood that. The wedding was a small one in Pittsburgh. The bride wore black. The only people in attendance were the Reverend, his wife, and family, which included Evelyn's mother, who had by then remarried, and was more or less estranged from her daughter. After they were married, Evelyn and Harry moved into his family home in Pittsburgh, where they lived quiet lives as Presbyterian philanthropists. It was an existence that Evelyn found painful, and that Harry would not be able to keep up for long. Then in June 1906, they decided to travel to Europe with Harry's mother. The couple went to New York to prepare for their journey, while Mother Thaw traveled ahead to meet them in London. On the evening of June 25, 1906, the Thaws planned to go to dinner and a show with a couple of friends, the specifics of which would be determined by Harry. They began the evening at a fashionable restaurant, but then moved to the Café Martin. While they were there, Stanford White entered the restaurant along with his 19-year-old son, Larry. Evelyn noticed him, but luckily Harry did not. After White left the premises, Evelyn informed her husband that the Beast as he insisted she call her former paramour, had been there. He was disgruntled. After the meal, however, he announced that they were going to the opening of a new show, a musical called Manziel Champagne, which was showing at the rooftop theater of Madison Square Garden. This was an extremely unusual choice, since usually Harry refused to set foot in any building connected with White. The show apparently was horrendous. Harry complained about their seating, and then spent much of the performance pacing back and forth at the rear of the roof garden, perhaps unhappy that White was not in attendance. Then, a little before eleven o'clock, when the show was nearly over, Stanny entered the theater on his own and took up his customary seat, which had been left empty. Soon thereafter, Harry returned to the table, making no note of White's entrance. At this point, Evelyn suggested they leave. All four agreed, and Harry even helped Evelyn with her wrap before proceeding towards the elevator. As the elevator doors opened, Evelyn noticed that Harry had once again vanished. Moments later, she heard a startlingly loud gunshot. The musicians faltered, and Evelyn recoiled as she heard two more shots follow in rapid succession. Those closest to the crime witnessed Danny's body topple over with the top part of his face torn away. Others seated further away purportedly believed for a moment the shots were part of the show. Then there was a dreadful silence before Harry began to shout, "'I did it because he ruined my wife! He had it coming! He took advantage of the girl, and then he deserted her!' Then panic ensued as 900 frightened theater-goers tried to flee. The orchestra was ordered to continue playing, chorus girls seeing White's body fainted on stage, and the mother of the lyricist, confused about what had transpired, began to scream, "'They've shot my son!' The closest person of authority was Paul Brudy, a New York City fireman who approached Thaw and ordered him to relinquish his weapon. He then escorted Thaw to the elevator. As they passed Evelyn, Harry kissed his wife on the cheek and said, it's all right, dear. I probably saved your life. Before handing Harry off to Officer Anthony Debs, Brudy asked Thaw why he had done it. Thaw responded saying, he deserved it. He ruined my wife and left her helpless. As they left the garden, Harry lit a cigarette and allowed himself to be taken to the nearest police station. Harry had no clue what he was in for. He seemed to believe that he would be protected by an unwritten law, that he had the right to protect his wife, and that he would be congratulated and released. He certainly did not take his situation seriously enough. He initially tried to use a false name with the police. Then he sent officers out to buy him cigars. Finally, around 3 a.m., Harry was charged by the coroner and escorted to Tombs prison. Less than an hour after the murder, reporters began to prowl about what they already began to suspect would be the crime of the century. By morning, the papers were filled with unsubstantiated rumors about the tragedy, and only weeks later, Thomas Edison's studio would put out a film version of Rooftop Murder. This case would be the most sensationalized criminal proceedings of its day. It would also be supremely mishandled by the Thaw family. Harry initially contacted their family lawyers to help him out in spite of the fact that none of them were experienced in criminal law. He dismissed his first lawyer, Delafield, naming him the traitor because he wanted to defend Harry by reason of insanity. Mother Thaw, for her part, also wanted to avoid the insanity defense unless it was the only way to save her son from the electric chair. She was very concerned with maintaining the reputation of her family, and did not want others to notice that insanity actually did run on her side of it. Evelyn, for her part, supported her husband in the defense that he wanted, even though she privately believed that he was, in fact, crazy. She also depended at this time on Harry and his family for sustenance. The trial began in January of 1907, by which time the media frenzy still had not died down. The Thaw case would be the first trial in American history for which the jury was sequestered. It took over a week and 600 prospective jurors to find 12 men who had not already made up their minds. It's probably a good thing they remained in isolation during the course of the trial, because every aspect of the trial would be published for the ravenous public, who seemed to really enjoy the fall of the society architect and his wealthy slayer. The first few days of the trial were a disaster for Thaw's attorney who after the second day asked in tears to be fired. The family then hired Mr. Delphin Dalmas, an undefeated criminal lawyer from San Francisco. Dalmas agreed to pursue a defense that would attempt to clear Harry on account of his righteous indignation and the defense of his wife. The center point of this defense would be testimony by Evelyn, who was asked, after years of silence, to tell the world about her relationship with Stanford White. Evelyn was called to the stand on February 7th, 1907. The courtroom was packed that day, and for the first time during the sensationalized trial, it was necessary to post extra security outside the courtroom. And there, Evelyn told the story of her debasement to an amazed crowd. It was printed in every major newspaper. And the next day, the crowds outside the courtroom had swelled to several thousand people, wanting to get a glimpse of the dangerous beauty. When she left the courtroom that night, Evelyn found herself battling through hundreds of people, mostly women, who sought to get close to her and to touch her. As they began to break through the barricade, policemen had literally beat them back with nightsticks. In spite of later impressions, Evelyn's now heightened fame was not something to be envied. The trial lasted until April of that year and ended up with a hung jury. Harry stayed in prison and Delmas returned to San Francisco. The second trial would be much faster, beginning in January 1908 and ending in February of that year. This time, Harry's legal team decided to use the insanity defense, and they were successful. Harry Cathaw was sent to an asylum for the criminally insane. At first, convinced that he would be able to secure his imminent release, Harry remained in a fairly good spirit, even enjoying conjugal visits with his wife. However, the longer he stayed incarcerated, the angrier he became, and soon he began to blame Evelyn for his predicament. Things got even worse when Evelyn informed him that she was pregnant with his son. Although she would maintain until her dying day that her son, Russell Thaw, was Harry's son, he never acknowledged the boy and soon divorced his wife. After the divorce, Evelyn found herself in a bad situation. She finally mended fences with her mother, who would be instrumental in raising her grandson. Evelyn herself then went to Europe, where she used her notoriety to break into show business. She would eventually marry her dance partner, Jack Clifford, though the marriage would not work out. Like her mother, Evelyn would try her hand at a variety of different employments, but none of them would ever be very successful. She succumbed to alcohol and drug abuse for a time, but eventually cleaned herself up. Harry died of a heart attack in 1947. He left his ex-wife $10,000. It was the same amount he left to a waitress he fancied in Virginia. At that point, Evelyn moved in with her son, Russell, and his wife. She would be very close to her three grandchildren. When she died in 1967, at the age of 83, she was still remembered as the girl on the swing. Her legend would live on, not only through her portraits, but also through the film done about her by 20th Century Fox and The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, for which she worked as a consultant. She also features in the 1975 novel Ragtime and in the musical of the same name. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, And follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.